Welcome to another episode of Connect Detrimental. Dan Wallach, Dan Lust. We are back for another week of sports law. Dan, kind of a busy week. We're kind of going all over the map here. How's it been? Oh, it's been a pretty good week. I've been uh, you know, writing a couple of articles. I'll, I'll share them later this week. They're about the Florida sports, sports betting uh, lawsuit that's on appeal before the U.S. Court of Appeals in the D.C. Circuit. I'm also been appearing on radio and television talking about the California ballot initiatives surrounding sports betting. So it's really good to come out of the sports betting world and now focus on the broader context of sports law. Well, happy belated New Year to you. I feel like you and I are are celebrating a holiday. We should uh, mention the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah has just passed. So that was a a lot of my last couple of days. So happy and healthy to those who are celebrating. Dan, you know, I have some big personal news to announce. I think I can Probably by the, the, the next time the next episode is out, I will have announced it. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll hold it for a little. But just know uh, I have some, some big news uh, coming down the pike. So yes, excited to announce that. But for our episode today, four topics, Dan, and uh, it's a fun week for us. We have four kind of different topics. One, we've covered a bunch, but the other three are, are fairly new on our radar. So uh, number one, we're going to talk about Tua. Tua Tagovailoa. Dan and I had to go to the books for the correct pronunciation, but uh, we're going to talk about his uh, seemingly entrance and bizarre exit from the NFL concussion protocol. The NFLPA has announced an investigation into it. So we'll talk about what the protocol entails and uh, how Tua is kind of skirting that line. Uh, Number two, an update on the Dan Snyder saga. The will he or won't he, will he get booted from the NFL? Certainly have an update on that front. Number three, the live tour. We've seen a number of live golfers, Phil Mickelson included, announced that they are uh, being uh, dismissed or they're they're asked to be dismissed from that lawsuit. We'll talk about the implications. And last but not least, Dan, when we recorded this uh, last week, I thought Aaron Judge would have hit number 61 by now, as at least at the time we are recording this, he has not. We're going to talk about a statement from the New York Attorney General as to why some New Yorkers have not been able to see this home run chase. So I have to compliment Mr. Judge for doing conduct detrimental, a real solid by going into a, a little bit of a mini home run slump so that we can have two weeks of back to back to back coverage on the judge home run controversy, the AG. So, you know, keep it going, but I think he's going to run out of time very soon. How many games are left? The season ends Sunday. Now it's getting to be a close call on whether he's actually going to get over the hump. It is a close one, Dan. And we should mention in our last episode, we did not talk about the other impending home run chase. That was Albert Pujols' chase for 700. So I think we'll, we'll find a way to, to bake that one in as well. A belated congrats to Mr. Pujols on that uh, big number 700. Oh, okay. So, Dan, a reminder, our podcast sponsored by Themis Bar Review, the top bar prep company in the entire, entire galaxy. And, uh, yeah, if you want to head over to themisbar.com slash condetrimental, that is the best way to support the show if you are a law student by signing up for Themis and using our promo code conduct. Before we get started, a, a shout out to Conlon Farrell. Every week he gives us with a, uh, a betting pick, which uh, and that segment is sponsored by Better Edge, one of our newest sponsors to the show. Uh, Better Edge, if you use our promo code CONDUCT, you get a $20, basically a free bonus in your account. And uh, yeah, it's basically a peer-to-peer betting site. You're not betting against the house, you're betting against your fellow bettors. And Dan, week two, Conlon started with us. He gave us Detroit Lions to, uh, to win. They did. Last week, Dan... He gave us the Dallas Cowboys to win against the New York Giants. So, uh, Dan, our friend Conlon is now 2-0 and in his sponsored segment by Better Edge. So, Dan, I think we found a – I think you're the sports betting law guru. Conlon might be just like the betting guru. How about that? 
Yeah, you don't want me as the betting guru. Uh, I, I have an abysmal record of betting. I'm 100% on the money with sports betting litigation predictions, but not so well when it comes to betting on the actual games. Um, it goes back to high school. So I know that practicing law and advising in the area of sports betting is a far better endeavor for Daniel Wallach than actually betting on the game. So I'm glad that we have somebody on our team who is uh, astute and uh, on top of his game when it comes to prediction. So let's see if Conlon can keep the streak going next week. I mean, it coincides with the addition of Better Edge to our team of sponsors. That's just a great way to get started for Conlon. So, you know, come back and you know, keep checking out Conlon's predictions. He's doing great, 100% right on the money. Again, congrats to Conlon. And uh, Dan, I think that's a good point for you and I to get rolling into substance. So number one, Dan, this story will, will take us to very sunny, very hot, very humid, Miami, Florida. Tua Tagavaloa, the quarterback for the Miami Dolphins, if you're watching week two of the season, off to a very hot start. Uh, him and Jalen Waddle doing the Waddle and Tyree Kill, the newest uh, import from the Kansas City Chiefs. Tua, this looks like it's the year of Tua. So he's got a game this past week against the Buffalo Bills in Miami. And uh, I was watching the game very closely, as, as our listeners know, I am a Buffalo Bills fan. And Tua takes a very hard shot right at the end, I think it's of the second quarter, a shot which sees his head slam against the turf. So there are a lot of, um, you know, uh, pro football doc and, and different medical experts in the field. And we are sports law experts. There are sports medicine experts. All of them, at least that I saw speaking on Twitter, said that Tua will be out. He will not return to the game. He's demonstrating signs of concussion. He will not return to the game. Yeah, then people were dropping in their replies a couple minutes later and uh, putting in the replies at Old Takes Exposed because Tua all of a sudden came back to the game. So Teddy Bridgewater was the backup over there. Uh, I think people expected a healthy dose of Teddy. And then all of a sudden Tua was back in the field. So Dan, here's the scene. And then uh, you know we'll, we'll lay out the law a little bit. Tua takes this shot and his, ha- his head slams off of the turf. And then you see Tua get up, kind of fall. He gets caught by a teammate, takes another couple steps, and it looks like his legs just crumple beneath him, and he really has to stop and, and kind of be escorted off the field. Very clear to, to you or I, anyone that watching doesn't have to have a medical degree, he's got some signs of instability at, at a minimum. Just like, uh, Dan, that, that famous Undertaker gif, he's back from the dead Tua and ended up finishing that game leading the Dolphins to an upset win 21 to 19. The issue, Dan, is that the NFLPA, the NFL Players Association, did not like that Tua seemingly entered and was removed from concussion protocol, seemingly without following the necessary steps. So, Dan, we'll, I'll, I'll leave it there, but that's the set of it. Tua returns to the game, leads the Dolphins to victory, but did he do it permissibly is the question. I mean, kind of underscores the uh, you know fallacy with the NFL's concussion protocol it places, uh, you know, the decision ultimately, even though it's supposed to be a consultation between the team physician and uh, an unaffiliated neurotrauma consultant that's on the sidelines, ultimately the team makes the call and the player has an incentive to want to come back in against maybe the better judgment here. And initially there was some debate over whether this was even, is it a head injury, a back injury? I think the, the Miami Dolphins in particular seemed to waffle on that issue. If you were following the Miami Dolphins Twitter account, Right after it happened, they tweeted injury update to a, you know, uh, Tagavalua has a head injury and is questionable to return. And now two days later or a day later, it's magically transformed into a, a back injury. The Twitter account said that, that Miami Dolphins Twitter account wow. tweeted on the game day of the game after the injury occurred that 
he's questionable to return because of a head injury. So wow. that's, that's sort of presumptive proof, at least that there's a, an issue there, at least from the team's perspective. So, you know, under this, there, there's this concussion protocol that the NFL head, neck and spine committee, you know, came up with in 2011 that has all of these requirements in order for a player who's suffered some kind of a, a head injury has to go through in order to return to the field. He has to go through a neurological exam, cervical spine examination, observation of speech, gait stability, eye movement. This is determined by a team physician in consultation with the independent consultant. And then the consultant, I think, makes the call. I don't think any of these steps were taken. And you know, congrats to the Miami Dolphins for being three and oh. But the incentives surrounding this situation are heavily weighted to the team prioritizing the team goals over the player's long-term health. And, and certainly the, the Miami Dolphins would not knowingly uh, put a concussed player back on the field. But you can't tell me with these circumstances and indicia that some questionable decisions weren't made. And the end doesn't justify the means, Dan, just because they won the game you know, doesn't say, okay, all's well that ends well. The NFL has a brutal track record of managing and, and disclosing and protecting players from head injuries. And now this is opening up a, an entire new Pandora's box because what, what, what do you think a team is going to do? If a team has a choice on a close call and they need to win this game or want to win this game, they might have some built-in incentive to try to sort of, you know, any doubt is going to be resolved in favor of the player coming back instead of sidelining him out of an excess of caution. And this really cries out for maybe an overhaul or revision of the existing protocols and maybe removing the team's influence from the situation and having a true independent determination made without influence from team staff. So, Dan, you, you said something that I, I picked up when, when the Dolphins knowingly put in a concussed player. That's a little bit of this gray area, because if you just follow the history of football and, and you know, Tua, former top pick in the draft, right, he's probably going to want to play. So is the question knowingly putting a player in versus, I don't know, recklessly or negligently putting a player in? You know, let's let's go through the steps here, which I think are important, why the NFLPA is announcing investigation in order to be placed in the NFL concussion protocol. And and. You and I should take one step back. Uh, Dan, you know, I have some personal injury background, uh, having done, you know, personal injury cases for a number of years. A neurological issue does not necessarily entail a head injury. That just means any type of neurological issue that that's, can come from your spine. It could come from your cervical spine that's that's closer to your neck or, or you know, your thoracic spine or your lumbar spine. Any of those issues can cause a neurological issue. So there's this question as to whether or not this was caused by a neck or a back injury. And if you watch the video, I mean, it's clear that his back was impacted, but the real whiplash motion comes from his head. The Dolphins in, in later statements are trying to say, well, this was caused, I think he was uh, at a QB run at one point in time and he had a uh, back injury, you know, but it's, I think at best, it's a gray area. So according to the league, a player enters, enters the concussion protocol if one of two things happen that they exhibit or report symptoms or signs suggestion of a concussion or stinger. Bingo. You watch that video. It's very clear that he has symptoms of something resembling uh, some type of neurological issue. Or, right, the team trainer, the booth, the team physician, an NFL coach, blah, 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 or this unaffiliated neurotrauma consultant initiates the protocol. So I, I imagine probably both things happened after that video. 
So then, Dan, you get into the protocol. If any one of these six things are hit, then he's in the protocol and he has to be released, you know, specifically by the doctor. So, Dan, the one that I, I wanted to, to touch on, it says a focused neurological exam. Okay, and that means they look at the cervical spine, okay, range of motion, evaluation of speech, Dan. Here's the big one. Observation of gait. Object, gait is a fancy way of saying how the player is walking. When you watched two on video, he couldn't stand up. He, he clearly had an issue with stability on his leg. So I think on a couple of these object, objective criteria, he's met it. So then it goes to the doctors to clear him to return to the field. And then, Dan, to that last point that, that, that you kind of raised, like, would, they, would the Dolphins knowingly put him on the field with a concussion? Well, Tua, I'm sure when they interviewed him, he was going to say, well, no, no, I was walking that way because of my back. It wasn't because of my head. And then all of a sudden, it, it, it really demonstrates a flaw within this concussion protocol that we're going to just rely on the player's sub, sub, you know, subjective comments as to the causation of his injury. Then there's a real problem with the protocol. So it's either the Dolphins did something shady. Tua, you know, I think said something either that was uh, objectively wrong or he just he just didn't know. But then there's a flaw with the concussion protocol that a player that goes through Tua's things can come back. And Dan, I think it's all too convenient, right? That this was a very close game, right? The fact that the the it was a you know the biggest opponent of the year, the Dolphins beat the the Bills in a in a huge game. If this was a lesser opponent, if this was the Texans, just two would not come back out, right? So I I, I find a little uh, a little uneasy about how this uh, drama played out, and I think the NFLPA is is correct to investigate it. Let's let's find out exactly what happened. Yeah, l- listen, I, I don't want to you know sort of you know belabor the point, but I would ask you know does everyone to just check out that video of Tua hitting the ground and he it gets up. It, it's I wouldn't just characterize it as stumbling. He he exhibited spaghetti legs, right? If you've ever have you ever seen that famous viral video of the boxer? I think it was Zab Judah. His legs turned to jelly, you know, uh, you know, in a knockout, he, he, he was knocked down and he got up and he was just stumbling around the ring. Those are the signs that, that Tua was exhibiting and to immediately jump to the you know, conclusion that it's a back injury when he exhibited those symptoms and, you know, a video is worth, if a picture is worth a thousand words, a video is worth, you know, a hundred thousand words. We all saw what we saw and I don't know if an investigation is going to be sufficient here because clearly there's a question mark around surrounding how the Miami Dolphins handled this situation. So what are you going to do? What's the penalty? Is the penalty going to, you're going to fine them? Big deal. How do you disincentivize teams from acting in this way going forward? Because this is a litigation risk for the NFL, and it's more importantly a health risk for any player who goes through this. And I'd like to see the protocols change to remove the subjectivity or at least the team influence out of the equation. Because if somebody independent was making that call and had control, more importantly, has control over the process, there's no way he's coming back. Not that quickly. So I don't know. I think this is a good place to, to maybe, uh, you know, you know, wait and see what happens with, with the investigation. But the sanction to me is less important than the fix to the problem prospectively. Dan, I, I think you're right. And I think that's a, a good place to end it. Uh, we'll, we'll see what comes of it. But yeah, I certainly can see the Do- Dolphins, Dan, in our sports law network are no uh, no stranger to, to litigation with the Brian Flores uh, case still kind of hanging over our heads. But we'll keep an eye on that one. Sticking within football, Dan, let's move over to our second topic of the day. Dan Snyder, back in the news this week, stories by uh, our friends over at the Washington Post. Uh, Nikki Javala was on with us not so long ago. The report coming out, quote, some NFL owners' attitudes towards forcing Dan Snyder to sell the Washington franchise 
is shifting. Again, we talked about it on a very recent episode. Robert Sarver, and I have a slight update on the Sarver stuff, which uh, I think is probably important here, and then I'll, I'll give it to you for the update. So obviously, Robert Sarver has nothing to do with the NBA because, or with the NFL as an, an NBA owner. He, was, he voluntarily agreed to sell his team after seemingly saying, I'm going to put up a fight, right? I'm going to make this thing a little messy. You know, the update, at least on, on that front, and then we'll move over to the NFL, right? Sarver says, I'm going to voluntarily sell. And then there's been kind of, um, you know, an analysis in the last week, like, how did the NBA get Sarver to sell? So uh, we talked about a couple things in the last episode. We talked about LeBron James speaking out, Chris Paul, player on the Phoenix uh, Suns speaking out against the owner of his own team, the uh, NBA Players Association speaking out. And then what we've, we've heard behind the scenes, uh, you know, obviously the man has not uh, consented to it, but there was seemingly a plan, uh, at least reportedly, uh, all the way from the top of the NBA circles to continue to exert pressure from the highest level of influence on Robert Sarver. And reportedly, Michael Jordan was ready to speak out, you know, indirectly in say that Robert Sarver needs to step down. And then, right, uh, that was the next public domino. But behind the scenes, NBA owners were reportedly approaching Robert Sarver to try to force him to sell, I think, for their own interest, for the NBA community. So that was a seemingly a successful strategy in the NBA circles to force Robert Sarver to sell. And that's, you know, Dan, and as you mentioned, it's, a, it's the easiest path, you know, for everyone involved if someone voluntarily agrees to sell. So now, fast forward a couple of days, the story is now coming out that maybe it's a monkey see, monkey do league. The NFL owners saw how the NBA got Sarver out. And now, right, there's a story coming out, not so, you know, coincidentally, that the NFL owners, right, might be moving toward trying to force Dan Snyder out, whether voluntarily or, or forcibly. So, Dan, what is the latest on the Snyder uh, and NFL front? Well, there's a report in the Washington Post on, on I believe it was Sunday, uh, a story co-written by Mark Maskey, Nikki Javala, and Liz Clark. NFL owners' attitudes hardened towards commanders Daniel Snyder. I think the uh, Sarver situation certainly is an interesting parallel, but, uh, you know, for Snyder, his degree of, you know, potential harm to the league is many, many times greater than the risk that Sarver poses to, to, to the NBA. But I think what happens in the NBA is players can protest and they can mobilize and create an uncomfortable situation for the NBA. Whereas this is the first time in quite a while, the NFL owners are back channeling and saying, well, maybe it's time to, you know, force or have Dan Snyder sell the team. And certainly it's a lot easier to persuade somebody to do something voluntarily than to gin up or, or, or garner 24 out of 32 votes, which is a pretty steep climb under the NFL constitution, and then face down the prospect of Dan Snyder suing, you know, bringing lawsuits against the NFL and the individual owners. The owners may not want the legal battle on their hands with Dan Snyder, but it wasn't a bad punishment for Sarver to sell his team where he's going to get more than $2 billion Whereas the value of the Washington Commanders and, and you, know, you know, Snyder's family controls 100% of the team after buying out the minority owners for roughly, I think, eight or 900 million last year, he owns the whole team. And the most recent valuation of the commanders is $5.6 billion. This may be a good exit strategy for Dan Snyder, who is currently, you know, operating behind the scenes, facing down a gauntlet of different, you know, legal issues. He's got the House Oversight Committee, 
the second NFL investigation being conducted by Mary Jo White regarding those allegations made by Tiffany Johnston, the fallout from the first investigation, attorney general uh, efforts in, in the Washington, D.C. And, and Virginia about financial improprieties. The list goes on and on and on and on. And I, I think the, the other owners are recognizing what you and I have been saying from the beginning. I can't foresee any set of circumstances in which Dan Snyder remains as the owner a year from now, two years from now. It just seems as if there are these, it, it's like a thousand cuts of death. He brings so much undue scrutiny to the NFL uh, that I think the other owners want him out of there. Uh, without Snyder, there's no House Oversight Committee. Uh, there aren't any investigations about toxic workplace environments. The only places these seem to be occurring are in one franchise, and that's the Washington Commanders. And there's plenty of precedent in professional sports for the other owners and even the commissioner to gently nudge an owner to the side and sell the team. You have Jerry Richardson, who made one racist comment and then was fined $2.5 million and sold the team voluntarily. Sarver and Bruce Levinson, who sold the Atlanta Hawks after revelations were made that he made comments that were like racially profiling the team's fan base. What Snyder did is so much worse than, than Richardson, Sarver, and Levinson combined. I think it's, it's reasonable. I think the next step was to persuade him to sell voluntarily under the threat of a forced sale. Dan, let's talk about some of the comments from this article. There's one that I find to be interesting, but you'll, you'll see where we're going. So this was a quote from the Washington Post. This was from, I guess, the owner with one particular owner who had a very strong opinion. Quote, he needs to sell. Some of us need to go to him and tell him that he needs to sell. And then he was asked uh, if pressuring him voluntarily like they did with Sarver doesn't work, what will happen? And they go, quote, I think there will be movement. We need to get 24 votes. So what the Washington Post went on to explain is that there are some owners that were in support of it, but some were kind of wishy-washy. You know, we're not really sure what to do. They don't know enough about the process. We need to kind of wait and see. The date that I want people to pay attention to, which is, uh, you know, relevant on our calendar, the NFL's next owners meeting is scheduled for October 18th and 19th, where, uh, where I am in New York. That's going to be the, they're going to get together. And if something will change, you'll probably hear it starting to leak out either right before or after that meeting. But, you know, Dan, what's, what's funny I, uh, I just, um, you know, this past Monday, I spoke about uh, in my New York law school class, I was talking about the Cleveland Guardians and the Washington Commander saga. I was explaining different IP issues. And in doing my prep for that class, I remembered, I'm like, wow, do you remember there was once upon a time where Snyder said he would never change the name? Uh, and then all of a sudden, like he said, never, you can print it, never. And then FedEx Field came around. Uh, and said, we're going to threaten to pull the sponsorship from the field unless you change it. Dan, with the Sarver saga, I mean, uh, just going back very quickly, PayPal, the, the title sponsor of the jersey, said we're, we're not going to be affiliated with the jersey if Robert Sarver continues to be involved. So, yeah, Dan, we, we have not really seen, I mean, you know, when FedEx said we're, we're going to pull our naming rights from the field, it wasn't necessarily new. The Redskins name had been the name for a while. But what was new, which forced them to change the name to the Commanders, was that FedEx threatened to pull out. So you could have, right, in the next month, just like, you know, you had with the FedEx situation, some very big sponsor associated with the NFL or with the with the Washington franchise explicitly say we're going to drop out. So let's not say all hope is lost and we need something new to happen, as was the tone of this article. We need something new to happen for Snyder to get out. 
just takes money, right? If the if someone pull threatens to pull out of the league, whether it be a streaming partner or some something else, that will really force the NFL's hand. But if nothing happens, right? If no one threatens to pull money or nothing else comes out with respect to the commanders, you know, death by a thousand cuts. We've already had 999 cuts and he's still there. So it, well, and I think it will take something new, but it could be an, uh, an entity, uh, some type of big entity threatening to pull money out of the league. So I don't want to rule that one out. It's already happened, Dan. I mean, Anheuser-Busch ended their Washington commander's sponsorship. And when, you know, some sponsors, you know, withdraw, other sponsors join. I mean, SeatGeek, and the Washington Commanders just announced a lucrative you know, ticketing partnership. You think SeatGeek is going to, you know, is going to walk away from that? Uh, there will always be sponsors to fill the void. And I think at this point, for these other owners to suggest that they're going to uh, force Snyder to sell, you need news. You need something new in order to make that happen. To, to do the, if the status quo remains, there, there's no basis on which to force Dan Snyder to sell. You need either the House Oversight Committee to release some kind of investigative report, or maybe there's something in the deposition that Snyder gave a couple of months ago. And, and when the deposition's released, that's gonna open up another round of, of inquiries. But I think his the greatest threat to Dan Snyder's continued ownership of the Washington Commanders is the forthcoming investigation being conducted by Mary Jo White. Uh, into the allegations made by Tiffany Johnston that Dan Snyder put his hand on her thigh, tried to force her into a limousine. Presumably, there would have been witnesses to this kind of encounter. And if, if these allegations can be corroborated and Mary Jo White finds that this incident occurred as, uh, you know, as, as Tiffany Johnston had, had alleged it to occur, he's out. It's over. I, I think right now, you know, to, to um, use a phrase from the classic 1970s movie Animal House, Dan Snyder is on double secret probation. He's hanging by a thread and one more adverse finding of sexual harassment. And this one implicates him directly, whereas the first investigation was more of a workplace culture situation that he oversaw. His direct involvement in sexual harassment would mean the absolute end of his ownership tenure. So that's the one to watch, Dan. And this investigation has been going on uh, you know, for months. And I think at some point, Mary Jo White is going to wrap that up. And this time, if the findings are um, problematic, I don't think you're going to see a press release. I think the NFL is almost duty bound to provide a link to the uh, Deborah Voice and Plimpton investigative report on the NFL website, just like the NFL did with the Wachtell Lipton investigative report looking into Robert Sauver's tenure That's of fair. the Phoenix Suns. This time, a press release isn't going to cut it, Dan. We're going to need to see the full report, no matter how it comes out, whether it's positive or negative, because you know, I can guarantee you the victim in this case, the alleged victim, Tiffany Johnston, is not going to have any issue with confidentiality or having her name included in the report, which was the reason why the NFL wouldn't release the original investigation or have a report because they were trying to protect uh, the victims here. Well, in this case, the victim publicized the accusation. And what is the NFL going to do in response to that? They have to publish the report, release the report. And if there's any merit to it, that's going to be it for Dan Snyder. 24, it's going to be 32 or 31 out of 32 votes. I remember, uh, and Dan, this is, I, I mean, this is in, in total candor. 
I love speaking to you. We, you and I speak about once or twice a week and live. We, we text and we message a lot. But the point that you just raised is a fantastic one. And it brings up something, Dan, that, that we spoke about on the show fairly recently. I was on a panel maybe, I don't know, a couple months ago, and I, I was making a cross-sport comparison. And one of these lawyers who does not do the panel circuit, but he's, you know, he's, uh, I think, a knowledgeable guy. He goes, you know, he said to me, with all due respect, you can't compare baseball to football. You can't do this. And I said, well, with all due respect, like all these leagues pay attention to one another. So you have to pay attention to them. So yes, the baseball law is different than football law. And those two collective bargaining agreements have nothing to do with one another. But then again, if you're trying to predict what will happen, you have to pay attention to both. So Dan, what we, what we talked about with Sarver, the NBA released a full 40 plus page report on Robert Sarver. That is something that the NFL did not do with respect to Dan Snyder. They kind of did something with respect to, uh, you know, the Stephen Ross and the Dolphins. It was a shorter report, but it was some semblance of report. So now, right, if this next Washington Commanders report comes out from this Mary Jo White investigation, and it is anything less than what the NBA did with Robert Sarver, the, the moans and the groans are going to be that much louder. So if you had to predict, I would think that the odds are that they're going to release probably the most comprehensive report they've done on an owner in some time. That's the NFL, but that's because of something that the NBA did. So you're probably right, Dan, if we're trying to figure out what that next big thing is, it's a scathing law firm report that is longer than right the the vocal report that no one ever heard no one ever saw with respect to Dan Snyder. I think the the that we are hashtag release the report. It's still trending every couple of days, and that's because of our our you know our former guests on the show from the Washington Commanders, those former employees that you know I still keep in touch with. They have never let up the scent, even after the Robert Sarver stuff came out. They made it hashtag release the report go out, and that's relating to the Commanders investigation. So. I think you're right. I think that is the next domino, Dan. And now that now that you're saying it, yeah, that's probably you're right. The next big event that would force that conversation. We're in a state of waiting right now. The Mary Jo White report is going to be the next step and her findings will obviously be the uh, trigger for any further action against Dan Snyder because right now in a, in a, in a void without either a Mary Jo White report or, or some House Oversight Committee revelation. It's essentially we're, we're, we're exactly where we were several months ago. So, so I think it's going to take either a voluntary sale or at least an agreement behind the scenes or just waiting for the next shoe to drop. And that could be a matter of days, weeks or months. I think that's right. So we'll obviously continue to keep you guys posted on that one. But uh, we did think it was important to, to bring up that update. If I faced a punishment of having to earn $5.6 billion. Uh, that's not such a bad landing place for Dan Snyder. Remember when Donald Sterling was forced to sell the Los Angeles Clippers in the aftermath of this probate court proceeding brought by his wife, Shelly, to sort of challenge his, his capacity, mental capacity, that sale garnered roughly $2 billion. And we were amazed at the windfall that Sterling made from misconduct. Here, uh, Dan Snyder's windfall will be almost three times what Donald Sterling garnered from the sale of the of the LA Clippers. This is going to set the all-time record for franchise sales. And, you know, Snyder's become a real recluse in recent months. I don't think there's going to be any receptive environment for him to be a popular owner, uh, to basically be, you know, out in, in front and, and interacting with the public, the best scenario for him truly is to sell the team and walk away with close to $6 billion. I think that is right, but uh, we will we will put a pin in that one, right? So, okay, uh, we've gone two football stories, be it Tua and now Dan Snyder. Let's move over to the links to the latest in the PGA versus Live Tour issue. 
So as we uh, sit here today, at one point, this Live versus PGA Tour suit uh, obviously is not Live Golf versus the PGA Tour. It is 11 golfers versus the PGA Tour. Um, but the main golfer leading up the Live Golf side was Phil Mickelson. As we sit here today, only four golfers remain. That's Bryson DeChambeau, Matt Jones. I'm not going to get the pronunciation right, but you get the gist. There's only four. The guys that have dropped out of the suit, Phil Mickelson, Ian Poulter, Hudson Swafford, Taylor Gooch. In Pat Perez, you can keep going down and down. The, the comments from, uh, I think it was Pat Perez, explained, quote, I didn't really think it through when joining. I did it to back our guys. So basically a month or so into the case, well, I think it's about eight weeks, you now have a number of these live pros withdrawing from the case, which the optics certainly aren't good. Just a brief refresher for those that did not catch our old episodes. Uh, John Nucci, one of our contributors, did a fantastic job and, and still has done a great job covering the case. But, you know, essentially it's an antitrust lawsuit, right? Uh, early on, we're trying to figure out what, what you know, the PGA Tour might have cost these golfers from, from banning them. You know, early on in the case, though, there was an injunction filed by some of these live golfers in order to play in the PGA Tour playoffs, and they lost that case. It was a big win for the PGA. Now, if you're trying to figure out how that happened and what that meant for the lawsuit, if you listen to our episode, we explained one of the barometers, one of the standards that the, the live golfers failed to uh, you know, rise to was the likelihood of success on the merits. Okay, that's, that's very interesting, right? So now if you're one of these 11 golfers, including Mickelson and Ian Poulter that have now dropped out of the case, you'd have to say, well, what am I signing up for for the next two, three years? I don't have a likelihood of success on the merits. So what am I hanging around in this case for if we're not likely to win? So we didn't predict it back then. We, you know, we, but I think the writing kind of was on the wall. Hey, uh, Liv, let's say they might've been a, a favorite to win this lawsuit, at least at one point in time, why, why some of these big firms took a chance in it. Certainly their odds took a huge hit in the, in the PR space or just in the I don't know, normal legal space when you lose uh, that early injunction. So yeah, um, Mickelson is now dropping out. He's had some quotes in recent days. He wants harmony between the two leagues. And uh, now it's official. He is now out of the case. So, Dan, uh, I have some thoughts in it, but I'll, I'll kick it to you first. What do uh, you think this has any impact on the litigation? What are your initial assessments here? No, I don't think it really does. I mean, once you've gotten by the preliminary injunction phase where the uh, PI was denied, now we're heading towards the you know, long slog of litigation, you know, class certification, discovery, the merits. It's going to go on for years and years and years. You don't need 11 golfers to be class action or putative class action plaintiffs. You only need a couple. I mean, the Brian Flores lawsuit, good example. I think you've got three or four assisted coaches who are the named plaintiffs who are angling to be class members. You don't need 11 golfers. You just need three. And most notably, the Live Tour itself became added as a direct plaintiff. So you have Live as a plaintiff and you have three other golfers. So with those three other golfers, there's really no need for Phil Mickelson anymore because, um, you know, his presence could be a distraction. For example, on the class certification issue, uh, maybe an argument could be made that he's not a typical plaintiff. You've got to satisfy the requirements of, you know, typicality, numerosity. You know, there are four or five elements, and then you've got to show that individual issues don't predominate over, over common class-wide issues. His presence as a plaintiff could actually be deleterious to the certification of the class because of his unique you know, factors. And, and let's face it, despite all of his public comments that he wants the two organizations to come together for the good of golf, 
he got out of the case probably for one principal reason in that he doesn't want the scrutiny, Dan, because as a class action plaintiff, he's going to not only be subjected to merits discovery later on in the lawsuit, but initially he's going to have to give a deposition related to the issue of his suitability as a class action named representative. And that's going to delve into his you know, finances, his, his history as a golfer, his relationships, he doesn't want he doesn't want that kind of scrutiny. And if the case can move forward without him just as effectively, there's much more downside for him in participating in, in uh, discovery than there is in being absent from the case. And he's going to benefit directly a, a, as a consequence anyway, because if the class recovers, he's a member of the class as an absent class member. So financially, it doesn't mean anything more to him by being the named class representative other than maybe to get a a sort of a, a, a one-off fee that you typically pay class representatives. But with that minor upside comes all this scrutiny that someone in Phil Mickelson's position undoubtedly and for good reason wants to avoid. Yeah, let's, I mean, let's just, I mean, I imagine, you know, most of our, our lawyers understand this point, but maybe our sports fans, our law students do not. In, in, in taking a deposition of someone, you could have something called a party deposition, which is deposing someone that's actually named in the lawsuit, be it a plaintiff or a defendant. It's called a party deposition. Um, or it could be like a, you know, an agent or a company rep of a company that's represented. So for example, you sue the PGA Tour, you could name any, you know, you could have a deposition of uh, any employee with respect to the PGA Tour. That would be called a party deposition. What we have here, even if Phil Mickelson withdraws from the case and his name is no longer going to appear, uh, you know, in, in the caption, Phil could still be deposed as a non-party deposition. So obviously Phil was one of the guys who I think was, you know, very ripe uh, for this move. If you just read his comments on Phil, you know, Shipnuck's comments uh, in his book, like I know Phil seemed to be at the very core of this decision to defect and drop out of the PGA, you know, to be associated with Liv. So he's a guy with a lot of information, a lot of knowledge. And I imagine, right, his name's going to come up uh, a lot with these remaining plaintiffs as the conversations that were occurring between the golfers. Yeah, but Dan, the scope of discovery for a non-party subpoenaed witness is much narrower than the scope of discovery would be if he were the named class action plaintiff. Of they're they're going to be able to go into much greater detail on his you know, professional and business life and personal affairs and his earnings and his business and financial dealings. He doesn't want that. On the issue of whether he's a valid non-party witness that you could subpoena, it's much thinner in scope. They won't be able to get into all these other areas. And ultimately, I think, you know, once we're past the issue of preliminary injunctive relief and issues of whether these individual golfers have been harmed, I think the big battle ultimately is going to be between, you know, Liv and the PGA Tour. That's the trial not so much the players. And I think this is now uh, going to evolve into a, an entity versus entity lawsuit with maybe somewhat of a lesser focus on some of the individual players. I think they do have valid, they may have valid antitrust claims, but ultimately this is Liv's battle to fight. And I think Phil Mickelson's withdrawal as a named plaintiff uh, kind of you know, ma- makes the class size suitable enough to proceed as a possible class action, while you know the the shift in the case from the individual players to to live is now part of the reason why maybe you don't need as many individual golfers to comprise the the, the list of plaintiffs. So I, I agree that Dan, if you re- if you're no longer a party, right, the standard to have someone uh, testify as a non-party is much narrower, but. 
the reason I thought to bring it up, Dan, as we, uh, you know, we do our prep for the show, I'm going through, you know, the comments that people were saying, and, and some blue check mark people were saying, Phil has made a conscious decision. He he doesn't want people to dig into his finances and his comments, so he's decided to withdraw from the lawsuit. Just because he's not a party to the lawsuit doesn't you know immunize him from the ability to be deposed and maybe even potentially as part of a subpoena um, give over some type of documentary evidence. So yeah, just just the the point here being for our our non legal people. Phil does not control whether or not he's going to be a part of discovery in this case moving forward. Yes, he might have. Uh, made it a little bit harder for him to get called in to testify and or provide documents. But yeah, th that ship is kind of sailed. So um, I, yeah. I did want to talk, Dan, you know, we, we talked in an earlier episode, and I, and I still think it's worth worth mentioning here. The law firms that are on the left side of the V, so the ones representing the plaintiffs, are some of the biggest law firms in the entire country. I've, I've called them out the first time. I, I know people there, so I don't want to do it again. People people can look them up, but but some very large law firms. Dan, they they must look, you know, there's a there's a meme online with this dog. I have no idea where this is from. I use this this uh, this gif a lot. It's a dog like sipping coffee while the, the building is burning around him. And he's like, this is fine. And there's fire encompassing him. You know, if you're a lawyer on this case, you took this case, you expected it to be one of these fundamental sports law cases, right? Live versus PGA. And all of a sudden you're seeing half of your golfers drop out of this. I mean, it's not the biggest sign of confidence in the case. I would be very uh, concerned if I was one of the firms on the live side that that uh, I'm lo losing support here by the second A in public sentiment, but B with my with my plaintiffs, everyone's just dropping out here. I mean, that's cer certainly not a good look. Uh, I think ultimately there's going to be a settlement here, and and the and the law firms are going to end up in in good shape. Live obviously has made or probably made some assurances to the law firms uh, that they're gonna, they're going to get paid one way or the other. But that's that that's neither here nor now, and it's not the paramount issue of the day. That's that's to be uh, you know decided at a much later time. But for Phil Nicholson, you, you know the presence in this lawsuit is problematic now that it's gone past a preliminary injunction because he's worth what is he worth three hundred million four hundred million dollars. That's not the uh, ideal person to front a class action lawsuit alleging that you've been financially harmed. Obviously, if the, if the allegations are true, he has suffered some financial harm, but he's worth close to $400 million. That's going to come up time, time, and time again. And that's going to be the tagline, the first sentence, you know, in, in any brief filed by the PGA Tour, his presence in the case could be more problematic than helpful. And I think that's reason enough for him to step to the sidelines to avoid the scrutiny and to avoid the optic of somebody who's almost a billionaire, you know, claiming that he's been economically harmed uh, where he's already worth close to a half a billion dollars. So I think that's the main reason we're not seeing Phil Mickelson. It's not any peace offering. It's, it's an act of self-preservation. So I guess we'll we'll keep our tabs on that one. But yeah, I, I certainly, Dan, I, I guess I'll say this. I guess I'll say this in, in closing. If I was at a firm and I had Mickelson, I had Ian Poulter, I had a number of high-level golfers, and I have them saying, I didn't think about it too much. I, I, let me get out now. I probably should have thought this thing a little bit closer. Whatever leverage, right, the, the Liv had in to force a settlement, it's certainly waning with each respective plaintiff that drops out. So yes, do I agree that a settlement will likely be reached? Sure, but I think that number drops if you have all these golfers keep dropping out of the case. It certainly doesn't, it's not the biggest sign of support for the case. I think the lawyers had a hand in this decision, to be quite frank you about think so? it. 
Yeah, I don't think they were blindsided. You, you I don't think, think they were blindsided. You think they? Well, I mean, like, like that's called. I mean, let's call. I call it like I see it, Dan. I think they would love to have Phil Mickelson remain as the lead plaintiff in the case. They're the one that made that decision initially. I don't know about that for the reasons I outlined earlier, given his net worth and his outsized attention, the controversy surrounding Phil Mickelson. You get him in front of a jury as the lead plaintiff in a case alleging that he's been economically harmed, it's not exactly the best narrative to sell to a jury. So I think it might have been helpful at the front end of a case. But with with three, you know, golfers already remaining as named plaintiffs, I think DeChambeau is one of them. Matt Jones uh, is a second one. And with Liv as a plaintiff, you got enough to take this case to a trial. But Again, uh, I, I think he got out of it for one principal reason, which was to avoid the scrutiny. And there's going to be more, more downside than upside for him through continued participation. We could speculate as to the motives, who, who, whether the lawyers were comfortable with it. But I'm less concerned with the revenues of Amjur top 100 law firms. Uh, they make plenty of money as it is. Uh, revenues per, per partner are sky high. I'm, I'm not going to shed a tear for a law firm losing yeah. Phil Mickelson off of a class action complaint. Yeah. Hey, uh, there's a famous line my dad taught me. My dad's a lawyer for, for many, many years. My, I remember the first line he taught me that I, I really stuck to was, uh, he was telling me about a, a deposition that a client of, or a colleague of his had. And I think the line was that, that his colleague said was, were you lying then or are you lying now? And if, as we apply that here is, you know, were, were these law firms wrong then or are they wrong now? Because at least at some point, someone signed off as having Phil Mickelson as the yeah. lead plaintiff in the case. No longer. So let's move on to our fourth topic of the day. The Aaron Judge mini slump has created consecutive weeks of coverage of the topic on conduct detrimental. And Dan, we've had the New York Attorney General, Tish James, weigh in on the Aaron Judge controversy, putting out, you know, a press release or a public statement imploring Major League Baseball Apple TV to you know make the game available to all fans. So what do you think about you know that development, Dan? And is it something that has any legal ramifications? Let's read it here. I think it's uh, I think it's probably important and it's a fun one for us to cover us, obviously both growing up in New York. The uh, the quote from the Attorney General, it's a big press release that came out, uh, you know, right in the midst of the home run chase. Quote, history is in the making as Aaron Judge electrifies Yankees fans and everyone who loves baseball to deny millions of New Yorkers and fans around the nation the opportunity to watch as Aaron Judge steps up to the plate is wrong and unfair. New Yorkers paid their cable bills expecting to see live sports and programming. Now they're being asked to do extra if they want to watch this exciting home run chase and potentially historic game. That is why I'm calling on Apple and the MLB to reach a fair accommodation with the Yes Network so that fans can watch what we all hope will be history made this evening. Dan, that was four days ago. History has not yet since been made. Safe it to say uh, that statement from the New York Attorney General had no impact, uh, had no impact on these negotiations. So Dan, what I think, um, I think that was a, a politically motivated statement. If you really kind of get into the weeds of this MLB, uh, Apple TV deal, Major League Baseball got $85 million from Apple TV. This was their first foray into live sports. You know, we were talking about, uh, you know, what, what might move the needle on the NFL. Uh, you know, on Thursday nights now, NFL is streaming, um, you know, uh, on, on Amazon Prime. And this is MLB's version of it. Every Friday, there are games on Apple TV. People were following it closely, even with the Pujo stuff. Uh, on Apple TV, they have their own announcers. They don't have the local broadcasters, which some local fans were upset about. But that's the deal they struck. Major League Baseball allowed Apple TV to exclusively have those games. So if you were a fan of a, the Yankees or the Cardinals watching the Pujo chase, 
you had to go watch the game on Apple TV. And guess what, Dan? It was free for Apple TV users. So, you know, I get what, you know, Letitia James is saying, but I can make the argument, right? Apple TV is kind of free and, and cable costs a lot of money. So it's not really some type of antitrust claim, right? Uh, I don't know. It, it's, an odd, it's, an odd, it's an odd comment from the AG. I'll, I'll put it that way. Well, I mean, the New York attorney generals typically use the office as a platform to run for higher office someday. I mean, she was considering a race for the New York governor in, in 2022, and she, she dropped out or didn't proceed. So certainly putting out public statements and press releases like this every week, a lot cheaper than buying you know, a campaign ad on TV or radio. This is about nothing more than keeping Tish James's uh, name in the news and highlighting in a positive way the issue. And maybe, maybe she, by bringing more attention to this, it could cause some you know, movement or uh, more accessibility for fans to watch the game. But you, you brought up the most important point. She had to backtrack on that statement because the game is free. And it's not just for Apple TV users and those that already have subscriptions. Anybody can access the games by basically registering or signing up with Apple without any kind of financial commitment right now. At some point, Apple's going to begin charging uh, for the games. Where right now, the games that are being played in the 2022 Major League Baseball season are free to anybody who either has an account or is enterprising enough or um, smart enough to figure out how to get an account for free. And I think there needs to be a little bit more information out there that to counter the false narrative that these games cost something. In fact, if anything, yes, the Yes Network is far more restrictive than Apple TV. You're going to need a subscription for Yes. You need to pay a premium cable tier just to watch the Yankee games. So what I'm waiting for from Tish James is the next statement saying, well, why are any of these games on cable? Why not just make them available on free TV? Because there are so many people who don't even have cable TV. So I think the argument that she's making uh, collapses of its own weight when you look at it from uh, sort of the, the, the 3,000 foot view of understanding that these are two distinct business competitors. The game is available for free if you really want to search for it. And it really uh, pales in comparison to the games being, his, you know, just the, the continued trend is to take games off free television and put them behind cable TV paywalls. It's symptomatic of a situation that has persisted for years in Major League Baseball. When, when I grew up, Mets games and Yankee games were available. 100% of the games were available for free on either the WOR or WPIX. That has completely changed. I think the bigger issue is the increasing inaccessibility of, of live baseball on television as everything seems to be moving to either streaming for a subscription price or cable TV for a subscription price. But this is one, not one of those instances. This game, this home run chase, is actually free if you if you go through the steps necessary to register an account. Yeah, let's, I mean, talking about free, I mean, we should probably, you know, mention this, right? Apple TV struck this deal and they hit the, uh, if you're playing roulette, right? It landed on the right week for them. And we have in, in baseball now, two historic home run chases, Pujols uh, going for 700 and Judge going for 60. I, I can't remember a time in recent baseball history where we had uh, one, let alone two chases happening at the same time. So yeah, in that first spin of the wheel of roulette, right? Apple TV land, nailed it, right? They landed on the Friday game. Pujols hit those two homers and, you know, they got, you know, that, that one day, that game might've paid for itself that 85 million with the, 
you know, that Wayne Randazzo, who's uh, normally the Mets announcer, he's now immortalized with the Pujols home run call. And if you watch the clips from from now on for the history of uh, baseball, history of sports fandom, that Apple TV logo will be shown during the Pujols 700th homer. You know, so I, I you know, I remember I wasn't alive at Hank Aaron's, uh, you know, 715th homer, but I I remember seeing that clip. Now, Apple TV, that logo will be immortalized. So, you know, with Judge Dan, uh, it was funny. The other the other part of that statement, which I think we should talk about, you know, uh, Letitia James is like, hey, we hope there will be, you know, a uh, historic evening. This was on Friday. And Judge has not hit a homer since. I've been watching every game. Every time I'm watching college football, they cut into the Aaron Judge event. So, uh, yeah, as, as we tick, I mean, there aren't that many Fridays left for this to be, to be a concern. Um, well, you're getting close to the end of the season here, Dan. We're getting close. Well, I think no one expected an Albert Pujols home run chase. I mean, he was stuck at, uh, you know, a very modest amount of home runs in early August. And I think he's hit like 15 home runs since August 10th. So this was not a chase that fans around the country were following. It just kind of snuck up on everybody because he's been hitting home runs at such a rapid clip. Uh, but with Aaron Judge, we're now facing, uh, you know, sort of the, the clock ticking on what's left of this year's Major League Baseball season. And if he's going to break the record, if he's going to tie and or break the record, he has only a few games left uh, in the regular season. And I think a lot of us are focusing on the value of the home run ball. I'm looking at a different legal issue. Because the value of this ball is expected to generate a seven-figure recovery, millions, maybe a million, 1.5 million. There are different estimates put on uh, by different auction houses. What about the security around the fans? This is, this is becoming basically a riot situation where any ball that's injected in, in, into, into the stands is going gonna, is gonna to generate uh, a pylon with adults and children, you know, just everybody around the scene grabbing and clutching and piling on one another. I think there's much more a greater likelihood of personal injury litigation being filed by injured fans against Major League Baseball and the New York Yankees and any aggressors than there is likely to be litigation over who has ownership of the ball. I think given that the stakes have, have raised significantly, the focus should be on security and what steps the Yankees are taking and other Major League stadiums are taking to make sure that this doesn't become a situation of violence, which for a million dollars if you throw a million dollars out into the street what would people do to get that money and i think there's a, a, a high likelihood of injury potential much more so than there is over uh, who has ownership of the ball i'm happy you brought this up dan and, and uh you know I, I i think it's kind of funny on social media so speaking of the pulos one i had a i had a post on linkedin uh that had some traction over the weekend there were a lot of people virtue signaling and saying if i caught the ball i'd give it back to pulos immediately it's his ball 700 homers it's his part of history and i'm like i'd like to see someone catch that 700 ball right any of the people that were virtue signaling i'd like to see how many of them what percentage would actually give the ball to pulos i'm sure very a very small percentage maybe a handful but you know we we talked about it in the last show right under property law it's very clear the ball does not belong to Pujols. Just like a foul ball does not belong to the, the batter that hit it, it's hit, into, it's hit out of play, right? You know, certainly there are some customs in other sports, be it, um, you know, foot, American football or, you know, uh, soccer, that the ball should be thrown back. But that's not the case in baseball. So people were condemning this fan on Friday night, which people haven't seen. A fan caught the ball, caught it clean, apparently. There was no issue of uh, Papa of the Hayashi when they're fighting over it. Someone got it clean. 
And that fan refused several offers from the team and went home with the ball. They have not yet, as of today, decided what they're going to do with it. So I'm sitting here and I'm like, and I've always, Dan, I've always had this thing with my wife. If we ever win the lottery, right now, Mega Millions just got over 300 million. I've always told my wife, if it ever, if we ever won the lottery, I am not using one cent of that money. I'm going to sleep on it. Maybe we'll go on a quick vacation. I want to think about what to do with that money. The fact that this fan was being screamed at online, how dare he not give the ball to Pujols that same night? I'm like, the fan owns the ball. He doesn't have to. He, God forbid, he sleeps on it. It's a, it's Dan, as you said, it's a million dollar decision. Can we give the guy a couple days to think about it at least? And if he doesn't want to give it to Pujols and he wants to put it up for auction, why can't he do that? I think people just love saying how greedy this guy is without actually paying attention to the law, which allows this guy to do whatever he wants with it. I mean, those who live in glass houses, you know, is, is the quote. But, you know, I think what the teams do is their security officials, you know, converge on the fan and, 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 and try to pressure the person into giving back the ball or at least making some kind of accommodation. How would you like to be in a place in a position where you're making a decision that has such huge financial consequences and you have like 30 seconds to make the decision? Right. Have you ever bought a car in 30 seconds? Have you ever bought a, a house in 30 seconds? Have you decided to change firms, right? You may have some news on the horizon. Did you make that decision in 30 seconds? And, and, and I have news for everybody who blames the fan for his actions and taking the ball home. If you ever seen the movie, a Bronx tale, uh, when young Calagero was uh, saying, you know, I hate Bill Mazeroski. I hate him. He made Mickey Mantle cry. The paper say, said the Mick cried and, you know, Sonny responded, you know, how much does your father make? If your father can't pay the rent, go ask Mickey Mantle and see what he tells you. Mickey Mantle don't care about you. Why should you care about him? Nobody cares. And the bottom line is Albert Pujols doesn't care about this fan. Aaron Judge doesn't care about this fan. Major League Baseball, the teams continue to make attending a live game much more expensive. Uh, the price for watching a game has become more expensive. Food prices, parking prices, the cost of taking a family four to a live Major League Baseball game has increased, you know, uh, multitudes over what it cost in the 80s and 90s. And you're gonna, you're gonna tell a fan you've got to give back a million dollar souvenir? Well, if you think that's property of the New York Yankees or Aaron Judge or, or Albert Pujols, then change the rules, right? But under the current landscape, a ball that's uh, projected into the stands becomes the property of whoever catches it. And the team doesn't care about you. I would say if you're a fan, if you're somebody who's a consumer who's paid that much money to attend the game, that ball belongs to you. Do whatever you want with it. But under any and all circumstances, get it authenticated so that you can keep your options open. And of course, consult counsel. Never enter into a negotiation with a billion dollar corporation over the rights to a million dollar asset without speaking with a financial advisor and or attorney. The times have changed and the decision has much greater financial consequences than it did when Sal Durante uh, returned the ball to Roger Maris in 1961. Yeah, I'm, I'm all about for the love of the game. And if somebody, and I, I made this point online, Dan, if someone after deliberate thought, thinking about this for a week, God forbid, oh, it's a million dollar decision over a week. And they decide, you know what? I want to give the ball to judge and I'll exchange it for four signed balls, a signed bat and a meet and greet, which not coincidentally is exactly what was the 60th home run exchange. If that's what they come to after, you know, thought and deliberation, I don't really have an issue with it. I do have a problem with the, with the young fan, which happened in this, this, the judge instance, 
Like, I don't know. I, I feel like he was peer pressure. There's no statute of limitations as to when he can give that ball back. That's 60th home run ball. Judge is not hitting 70. That's the last round number we're going to have in this chase. And I, and I think he had a right to s- sit with it. But clearly, Dan, in, in this way we got into this conversation was by like, you know, potential for, uh, you know, litigation. Like, I don't know, the, the hate and visceral to this Pujo 700 fan for God forbid, he hasn't even said he's keeping the ball. He just said he wants to think about it. It's, it's, it's crazy. So for the last judge home run ball, whatever it is, you know, you might have fans trying to attack the guy. Like, how dare you not give it to judge? I'm going to, I'm going to beat you up unless you give it to judge. I just, I could see any number of scenarios. And um, yeah, I mean, listen, it's the fans ball. If we were in that position, Dan, you or I, I'd like to sleep on it. So my free legal advice, I, I said it, but I'll say it again. Sleep on it. My, that's my advice. You do not have to give it away. You don't have to say you're going to sell it immediately. Just sleep on it. Give yourself a night. Uh, and then, you know, if in the interim you want to call Dan and myself to, to negotiate on your behalf, we'd be more than happy to. Just for a small fee. A small fee. Dan, the problem is if you wait on it too long and Aaron Judge goes and hits another home run after that. Fair. Well, you know, does 63 become worth more than 62? So yes. uh, I think I think there's a there, there's sort of a continuum here and a, a balancing act. And uh, you want to sleep on it, but don't sleep too long on your rights because the next <laughs> home run ball might end up being worth more than the ball that you caught. So anyway, I think that kind of you know wraps up, at least for this week, unless you have one more one more thing to add. For me, I'm focused on the security situation and the prospect of uh, an all an, an all out you know, war for this ball and, and the injuries that people might suffer. So I'm thinking about that as well as ownership of the ball. Uh, I have nothing else on this. I wanted to add one, one uh, additional thing. So we do uh, what to watch for each week, a story that we had, we had basically wrapped up last episode. It was a little, uh, you know, a little something else that came after Ime Udoka, Dan, the Celtics coach. I don't know if you had a chance to comment on this with us last week, but yeah, the, the word is that he's officially suspended for a year. Dan, we didn't get to talk about it last episode. I figured we would talk about it a little bit here. You know, my what to watch for, I still think the story is trickling out. I was talking to family members this past week. And, you know, what's what is kind of upsetting is this that narrative, Dan, that people, you know, they see the initial accusations and then they don't see the clarifying report. There was a, a certain Celtics female employee that Twitter was it was a consensus that there was one female employee in particular that, um, you know, Ime Odoka had this consensual, intimate relationship with. There were reports that came out from, um, you know, certain members of the media that that individual the initial woman that people thought it was that was involved here, it was not her. It was a different individual associated with the organization. And then, um, you know, uh, just with without, you know, getting into too much of it, Matt Barnes, former, uh, you know, NBA veteran, he's, he's now, you know, in the in the media space. He says, you know, it's a quote from him that that he heard about what actually happened. And I guess it's not being reported as of today, but it's 100 times worse than what was initially reported. So that word consensual has a lot of connotations in the legal space. I'm not sure who leaked that. If you're if you're asking me, I think Ime Udoka's side probably leaked that word consensual to Sham Sharanya. And that's the term consensual that has now clouded all these reports. So certainly I would think for Ime Udoka to get suspended, there was a conversation whether he was going to step down. Now there's a conversation of whether he was going to get fired, if it was going to be wrongful termination. That word consensual is now guiding all of these conversations. So if you're trying to figure out crisis management, PR management, uh, my personal belief, I don't have any sourcing on this, is that 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 term consensual was purposefully leaked by Ime Udoka's side to try to guide these conversations. And if that was the case, Dan, they've done a very effective job because everyone's saying 
if this was consensual, what's really the problem here? But Dan, certainly it had to, at some point, move to a level of non-consensual for us to get here. Yeah, Dan, I think that's like really uh, rampant speculation to say that, well, you know, Udoka side leaked that report or leaked the forthcoming news, because think of how many people had access to this or maybe even motivation, you know, to provide the news to Woj and, and, and Chams. I mean, you had law firms that were involved. You have probably uh, people throughout the Boston Celtics organizations, uh, spouses and significant others of the involved people. The universe of potential suspects is so vast here, many of whom may have had motivation to do this. And, you know, you raised, you know, you used the word speaking of, you know, you know trickling, you know, news trickling out. I think the number one story for me going forward is who leaked this report, right? Oh. And, and who leaked this report and the focus hasn't been, I think that the league, I think the NBA, the Celtics shouldn't be overseeing that investigation. The NBA should be overseeing an investigation because this, this staffer and, and the people who've been speculated about on Twitter, the uh, female employees, they may have viable claims for negligent infliction of emotional distress, because if you're the leaker of this report, you have to have, uh, you know, you, you, first of all, you have a duty of confidentiality if you're within the Celtics organization. And it's reasonably foreseeable that uh, the release of this kind of news is going to set Twitter afire on who the, you know, alleged, you know, person that, that, that uh, Adoka is having the affair with. So this must be a priority for the National Basketball Association to investigate the source of the leak. Obviously, Woj is not under a duty to provide that information, but this needs to come out because that undermines the integrity of the investigation and now has subjected all these women or several women to undue speculation that they are uh, involved in a romantic affair with the Doka and it may have repercussions in their marriages, in their personal relationships, in their professional relationships, and it's not fair to them. And I have yet to hear anything about the NBA investigating that point. Yeah, I mean, Dan, I, I you know, you you'd called you called it speculation. I mean, there's only really two parties, right, to this potential side. It's the Udoka side and it's the Celtic side. And I watched the press conference and the majority of it on Friday, and it was clear. And, and I think something objective that we should note outside of you know just speculation. 23 hours passed from the time that uh, Woj's report was, or Woj tweeted, to the Celtics' first official comment. So I would think, right, if the Celtics were the one that leaked this, they would probably be quicker to issue some type of statement. And if you just watch the, the press conference, it was clear that they were uncomfortable with the way this information went out. So I know there was a narrative, and I think Matt Timpanic and I spoke about it on the pod, that there was a theory that the Celtics leaked this to see what the public sentiment would be. But at least in my personal opinion, that's all I'm, I'm basing this on. I, I think in hindsight, now seeing the time frame that that happened, 23 hours between the Celtics giving some type of communication, I think it makes more sense that that comment came from the Udoka side. And again, Dan, we, we heard a consensual intimate relationship. That was the term that was first came out. And then a couple hours later, we had the, heard the rest of it that, well, yes, it was maybe consensual, but there were unwanted comments that came out afterwards. So we heard consensual first, and then we heard unwanted. So my PR brain is is clicking. As you know, I had some, some sports PR, but I, I, I think that's where my mind takes me. But again, just my personal opinion here. Dan, if it was a doka, and I'm not ruling it out because it could be a renegade employee. It could be any could number be. of people. But if it was a doka, he should never, he should, he will probably never coach again in the NBA because that would be, that would constitute an obstruction 
of a of a of a workplace investigation, an obstruction of justice, an obstruction of the workplace investigation, and placing these women's names in the public domain. On you know, he had to have foreseen that that would have been a possibility. If it's him, he should get a lifetime ban from coaching in the NBA. That's how serious this is because this was a, a, a sensitive workplace investigation around improper sexual conduct. And if he um, you know, spilled the beans to a reporter before the report is released, before the announcement is made, uh, he's creating all these far-reaching consequences that are completely of his own making and are attributable to him. And, and, and if it's him, if he was the person who leaked the report, He's never going to get a job coaching in the NBA again. It's as simple as that. And he has to have been smart enough to have figured that out ahead of time. So that's why I may have some reservations as yeah, to whether the, he was the one. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the, the I'm not going to say anyone's name or anything like this, but I, I've been in the weeds. Not that I know anything inside, but I'm following the, oh, the, we've seen the names, you know, yeah, no, we, we've, we've all seen them. But I, I will note that there was one employee with respect to the Celtics. Who, who removed herself from social media within a couple of days of the story leaking. So, you know, uh, people can use their, their judgment as to why that might have happened. But, you know, I, I think, I, I, Dan, the fact that someone leaked the story, someone obviously did, and the Celtics didn't seem prepared to handle it. So I'm putting two and two together. But that's, that's just yeah. my sentiment. And by the way, a person can, can remove and delete their social media accounts to not, not, be, not out of any guilt, Right to also avoid the attention Agreed. and the speculation surrounding them, right? Because it makes sense. Uh, but I think in, in the case you're talking about, the, uh, the female employee may have deleted those accounts prior to the news coming out. And it was prior. Case, it was yeah, prior. If that's the case, maybe that's suggestive of something. But we don't know at this point. And, and certainly if there's a, a, a connection between Odoka and the transmittal of the information to Woj. That's, for, you know, it, it's bad enough what he's being accused of, but I think that would be for him excommunication from the annals of NBA coaching. I don't care how good of a coach he is. He's going to become persona non grata around the NBA if he released or he leaked this information during an ongoing workplace investigation. So I call upon the NBA to convene an investigation into this and not leave it to the Boston Celtics, who may be acting out of self-interest here. I think you need a neutral, independent organization uh, uh, investigation. Maybe Mary Jo White, when she's finished investigating Dan Snyder, will have time on her hands. Yeah, uh, Dan, it would not be the first and certainly not the last lawsuit that we have covered on this show with the leaking of information to the media that's resulted in a lawsuit. And obviously, uh, at least I'm, I'm referencing here the John Gruden case, which we probably are due for an update on. But um, Dan, I, I think that's a good place to end this episode. Uh, we covered a lot, a lot of topics. And Dan, it's always fun to convene with you. We'll see what other topics come up this week. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to close this out. Dan, anything to add before we uh, finish this thing up? Oh no, no. We covered uh, we covered a couple of topics that you know you know cross over into a few different sports: NFL, golf, baseball, uh, basketball. I think we covered all the majors here. Where the only thing the only thing we missed out on was hockey. So I think we've got to come back with an NHL story next next week. Uh, but I think that's all I have for this week. And uh, you know, so uh, I think we'll just call it we'll call it an episode. And yes. wait for the other shoe to drop in some of these stories uh, yes. over the course of the next week. Uh, Dan, always a pleasure to join you for Dan, myself, the entire Conduct Detrimental family. We will see you all next time on another episode of Conduct Detrimental. 